This is TechSnap, episode 367. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on May 8th, 2018. It's brought to you by our three great sponsors, DigitalOcean, iX Systems, and Ting. My name is Chris, and joining me every single week is my co-host, the engineer, the presenter, and the admin. It's Mr. Payne, Mr. Wes Payne. Hello, Wes. Hello, Chris. Now, Wes, we're going to talk predominantly about FreeNAS this episode. Mr. Alan Jude is going to join us for another short moment on the show to talk about the recent adventures we've had with Jupiter Broadcasting's now mega FreeNAS upgrade. It's really turned out to be a beauty. But before we get into all of that, let's warm up with a couple of stories. Let's start with Glitch, the next in a long train of Rowhammer exploits, but this time targeting GPUs. Now, over the past few years, as we've shared sometimes here on TechSnap, there really has been a steady evolution in Rowhammer. This started out as kind of a theoretical attack uh, to exploit physical defects in memory chips and then therefore tamper with the security of the devices they run on, right? You, we sort of have to trust that the CPU is correctly controlling access to RAM. And if you can somehow exploit that without you know, tricking the CPU, without the CPU's involvement, suddenly you have access to memory and you can flip bits. Right, and the row hammer was coined that because it exploits a class of hammers, specific memory blocks known as rows inside chips that, go, that are accessed thousands of times per second. And one of the things that's amazing about this is there's a true physical weakness as a result of the dimensions of the silicon just getting smaller and smaller with less space between each DRAM cell. So it's becoming increasingly hard to prevent one cell from interacting electrically with its neighbors and you can actually exploit this fact. Physics, Wes, you can't get around it. Yeah, it, it's really a pain. Now, Glitch is the first version that's able to use GPUs rather than a CPU. In fact, this advance actually gives them greater flexibility compared to using CPUs. It's also the first Rowhammer attack that uses standard JavaScript to compromise phones, meaning it can be executed, you know, users do nothing more than just visit a malicious web page, and uh, it turns out, you know, wait like two minutes. <laughs> it's, not, it's not instant. Uh, but assuming, you know, you're using a so-called trusted website, a website that's been compromised maybe, given enough time, they can compromise your device. Yeah, actually, just a side note to that, uh, the researchers used both Chrome and Firefox when testing on Android. Now, we should add that, like most previous versions of this attack, Glitch isn't really mature enough to pose a significant or immediate threat to most end users. There's a lot of reverse engineering and sort of specific tuning that's required to make this work. So in this case, this proof of concept really only works on a Nexus 5. So unless you're a Nexus 5 user and have some real serious enemies for the moment, we're probably okay. But it really does, it really is an improvement, and that's where this story is interesting. Now, one of the difficulties when designing a Rowhammer-based attack is dealing with CPU caches, right? You're trying to you're trying to attack a specific location, physical location on the on these memory chips. But every time you access memory, the CPU is going to be try to be try to be clever, keep things in cache, speed things up so you don't actually have to go all the way to memory and back. This causes a problem because then you can't actually attack that part of memory. So in 2015, there was a technique developed called cache eviction, basically to try to get things back out of the cache so you can attack faster and, and attack fast enough to actually flip a bit. Okay. 
Unfortunately, this has proven a lot more difficult than expected. A lot of CPUs, a lot of systems, it's just too slow. They're not able to actually successfully flip the bit. To contrast that, the GPUs integrated into most smartphones today have a lot smaller caches. Things stay in there a lot less time. You can get this whole thing to work faster. Uh, because the cache is shallower, you can exploit it faster. Yeah, and they also seem to have more deterministic behaviors. So there's there's somewhat random policies implemented in CPUs, but GPUs, it works, they can tweak it right, and then it keeps working. This is all possible thanks to some novel reverse engineering techniques developed by the researchers and targeted at the Snapdragon 800 and 801 systems on a chip. So it's not just the Nexus 5. Any phone using this system on a chip is, in theory, vulnerable. Yeah, and they also believe they could exploit other system-on-chip models if they were to target those specific model versions. They just happen to focus on this one because they have the documentation and the technique, but it's not necessarily unique to the 800-801. They were able to just load it right into Firefox and then execute any code that they wanted. Yeah, they talk about in the article, they started with Chrome, but then switched over to Firefox to write the exploit just because there was more documentation. <laughs> you know, we, we just knew it better. Thanks, Mozilla. <laughs> now, it is, it is important to note that in this case, they were then running as the privileges of the Firefox app, so they weren't able to completely take over the phone, but it is in theory possible to chain with something like Drammer or other exploits and then get root control of the phone. Yeah, and you'd still get uh, browsing history, uh, any data that belongs to the browser, potentially bookmarks or the password file. So it's still not super great. Very much. The researchers also point out that this kind of exploit, things that use the GPU, are often overlooked by the manufacturers, the OEMs of Android. Uh, and they think these are going to become more common because they're more efficient than the CPU. They're integrated into the same chip. Every Android phone has them now. And so they suspect we'll see more. So these row hammer attacks that have been brewing now for years, I think what, what we looked, we went like back to like 260 we've been talking about this. But now we're going to maybe see it accelerate. We live in a dangerous time between this and Spectre-like attacks. You can't trust the RAM. You can't trust the CPU. We've known we can't trust hard drives. Yep. It's a it's a dangerous world out there. I'm going to go live in an RV out in the Arizona desert with a radio, and I'll just do my podcasts over uh, ham radio. Perfect. All good. I'll tune in. <laughs> TechSnap Ham Edition. Dio.co slash snap. DigitalOcean. Go to DigitalOcean.com or even better, go to Dio.co slash snap. And for 60 days, you can run with a $100 credit. $100 over DigitalOcean will get you super far. You sign up with a new account at Dio.co slash snap. It's simplicity at scale. It's a cloud computing platform that you can use for additional infrastructure for your entire infrastructure to learn or as backup. Our buddy Alan Jude turns on additional droplets when he has a big live event for like some football thing. I think that's where they kick a ball around, Wes. I'm not super familiar with it, but Alan streams People it. seem to enjoy it when they're, you know, when you're not too busy I guess. just playing around with DigitalOcean. I, I mean, I'm too busy playing with computers, but people love to watch it. And sometimes Alan needs more, more servers. He needs to just throw more servers at it. He goes to DigitalOcean. This weekend, I was consolidating three droplets into one huge beefy droplet because now they have these flexible droplets where you can mix and match the resources that are most appropriate for your application. So I went up on the storage, went down on the CPU, went up on the RAM, and I've got this massive box now running several different containers and VMs connected to block storage. 
They also have an S3-compliant spaces, storage, and tons of options to choose from. Built-in monitoring is one of my favorite new features now that I've got a new system set up that I'm syncing some of my data to. And I'm, I'm enjoying watching the metrics, too. They're just beautifully done. You combine that with a straightforward, well-documented API, a dashboard that is just built beautifully. I've never really seen anybody pull it off better. It's the envy of the industry. Check it out. do.co slash snap. That's do.co slash snap. Longtime listeners to the TechSnap program won't be surprised when we talk about another Internet of Things vulnerability. They won't be surprised when we talk about it running Linux with an insecure configuration. But you might be surprised with some of the takeaways. This all started when FireEye's Mandiant Red Team discovered vulnerabilities present on the Logitech Harmony Hub. Now, if you're not familiar with a Harmony Hub, you connect it to a whole bunch of the other smart devices in your home, and then it has a, you know, a smartphone app integrated into the hub, allowing you to control everything else. Yeah, it's gotten a lot more popular as Amazon started selling bundles with Echoes, so you could control your TV and devices like that. So I've seen it in a couple of conference rooms, so people can control the television, which usually has Chromecast hanging off it in the conference room, and I've... I've seen family members buy it for their houses. So I know that it's selling more these days. Yeah, and not only that, but you know, it's connected to things like smart locks, thermostats, and who knows what else, power outlets, whatever smart things are in your home that's probably connected. The red team was able to identify an exploit that could lead to root access via SSH. And in particular, they noticed a few other things that were off, including improper certificate validation, an insecure update process, debug symbols left in the production image, and uh, a blank root user password. No way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, the thing is, is these devices are built with a mindset, oh, they'll never get console access. They'll never get logged into the shell. So we don't have to worry about the root password. We don't have to worry about the debug symbols. You can start to see like the thinking process here is we just, we have a hardened Linux on there. Hardened being uh, that the users are set to have no shell. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So, so you know, we can't say that they didn't take any any precautions, but it clearly wasn't a fundamental thought, a fundamental part of the design process throughout all stages. And that's really where it falls down. The researchers initially attempted to find a physical access, something like a UART interface or a, or a direct serial console. This didn't really turn out to be a great approach. So instead, they decided to focus on the operating system itself. Now, the Harmony Hub is designed to pair with a smartphone device and then receive configuration over Bluetooth. So they paired to the Harmony Hub and then set up their own wireless network and, of course, set up some fake certificates and were going to try to intercept as much communication as they could. Once they're connected, the Harmony application sends two different requests to the Harmony Hub's API, which then causes the Harmony Hub to check for updates. The Harmony Hub sends its current firmware to a Logitech server to determine if an update is available, and if so, the server sends a response containing the URL for the new firmware version. Now, despite the researchers using a self-signed certificate to intercept the HTTPS traffic sent by the Harmony Hub, they were able to observe this process, which really just shows that the Harmony Hub is totally ignoring invalid SSL certificates. It's not even checking. Right, they're checking to see if it's SSL, but not if it's valid. And that kind of goes back to the core point here. There is a certain level of security that they're assuming is just working and not validating as they go along. Exactly. 
As a result, they were then able to go retrieve this firmware file themselves. After extracting a few of the outer layers, really they just found a SquashFS root file system inside. Once they extracted the file system, they were able to start poking around. Now, at first, it really just stood out that a whole bunch of debug details were just left in the production image. Kernel modules that were not stripped, it really felt like they hadn't put a lot of attention to detail in minimizing and creating a real production image, right? These things will be shipped to hundreds of thousands of homes all over the world. Take your time, get it right. They also found, looking in Etsy password, that, well, the root user had no password configured. Therefore, if they can just enable uh, SSH server, you can get root access, no problem. Fascinating, too, because they found that if there was just a simple file that existed in Etsy slash TD enable, then the SSH server would automatically start at boot. So this feature was already built in. So they just had to create that file. Easy. The researchers were also able to hijack the update process. So during initialization, the Harmony Hub queries a get JSON to URI's endpoint on the Logitech API to obtain a list of URLs to use for all sorts of things, such as the URL to use when checking for updated firmware, or the URL to obtain information about updates additional software packages. They were able to intercept and then modify the response from the API and reconfigure the get updates member to point to their own IP address. Once the Harmony Hub pulled down this zip file package, it's not PKG, but it's really a zip file, once it pulled that down, it would read through there and look at the manifest file. And once it finds that, it would execute whatever it was told to do in this manifest file. So the researchers thought, hey, let's just turn on SSH, let's toss it in there, and it worked. Yeah, exactly. It really shows how they were able to change just a few simple misconfigurations, abuse their ability to intercept traffic, enable one simple file, reboot the device, and have full root SSH. Over SSH, yeah. That's the best part. It's just so easy. (laughs) Like sitting back from your desk at that point and just enjoying it. The story of this whole process really, really shows how there were a number of assumptions that might be reasonable in certain environments and, and on their own aren't showstoppers, but the combination, the lack of a holistic analysis, a lack of security thought at every step leads to exactly these sorts of problems. Now, obviously, the designers had thought about security, right? They they had taken some steps to make sure that, you know, easy console access wasn't enabled, SSH isn't running by default. These are good things. That's not enough. And then, in particular, I think there's a design attitude that, you know, just a couple of walls means that, well, you know, a script kitty won't get in, casual users looking for access won't find this. But the very same production image you know, all this firmware, all these devices, they're distributed widely. All it takes is one team of researchers, hopefully with good intentions, but maybe not, to find and publishize these details, to, to write attack scripts, and that's it. Everybody's box is now compromised. Exactly. TechSnap.ting.com. It's smarter than unlimited. If you use less, you pay less. The average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month. And it's simple. I'll explain why. It's just pay for what you use wireless. Your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. Whatever you use, that's what you pay. $6 a month for the line, 
and your usage on top of that. Nationwide coverage, no contracts, nor the termination fees, great customer service, and a control panel that puts you in control. You can see your usage at a glance. You can take complete control over every aspect of your plan, turn things on or off, set usage alerts, get support, activate, deactivate devices. And one of my favorite things about Ting is they have a CDMA network and a GSM network. When I'm traveling, that is so useful. I got a CDMA and a GSM device with me, which gives me great coverage. And I'll just use whichever one's faster when I need data. And when I use a little bit more data that month, I just pay a bit more. And the months when I hardly use any, I hardly pay any. It's great. You can buy a device directly from Ting or you can bring your own. Just check their BYOD page. If you bring one, they'll give you $25 in service credit. But just get started by going to techsnap.ting.com, $25 off a device or $25 in service credit, and you'll get started. I've been a customer for over four years, and you're going to love it. Techsnap.ting.com. It is proper time for an update on the Studio Free NAS build, migration, upgrade, insert your term. And we had the perfect opportunity when Mr. Alan Jude was in town for Linux Fest Northwest. The whole project went into high gear. I mean, if you're going to have somebody work on your free NAS, that's the guy, right? It sure is. So that's what we figured. And uh, he sat down with us at Linux Fest Northwest to tell us all about it. Before we get to that, though, we wanted to answer some of the most common questions that have come into the show about setting up your own free NAS for home or for your enterprise. So we went to the docs to get you the answers. FreeNAS has great documentation, and one thing I love about it is the practical mindset. FreeNAS is used for all kinds of systems, from big enterprise-scale deployments to just personal home servers. And depending on your use case, you're going to have different requirements. A lot of the documentation really takes that into account, so you know that you're getting just the best advice. Yeah, that is very true. And so we thought, let's start with how much RAM do I need? Because that's when they answer pretty well, and it's a very common question. Yes, even more common, I think, is before I even know how much to buy, what type do I really need to spend the extra dollar on ECC RAM? Yep, yep. They have a little handy rubric here, and it's it's this. If it's imperative that your FreeNAS system be always available, ECC RAM is a requirement. But if it's only some level of annoying, non-ECC RAM will fit the bill. Yeah. I, I think that's totally reasonable. Yeah, if you can handle an outage for a couple of hours, if you can handle restoring from backups, you're fine. And it's not because data corruption, because ZFS checksums the checksums. It's, uh, as they point out in here, more likely that you're going to have some other aspect of the system go sideways without ECC that'll affect your production system, that'll cause an outage. That's a good way to think about it. They also give you some general guidelines on how much RAM you should use. FreeNAS requires a base configuration of 8 gigs. And uh, that's mostly because they're considering ZFS. If you were using plugins or jails, they recommend 12 gigs as a starting point of RAM. And they acknowledge it's a lot of RAM, but the reality is it's a complicated question. ZFS does require a base level of RAM to be stable, and the amount of RAM it needs to be stable does grow with the size of the storage. So Think of it like this. 8 gigabytes of RAM will get you through about 24 terabytes of ZFS storage. That's 8 gigabytes of RAM for about 24 terabytes of storage. But beyond that, 16 gigabytes is a safer minimum. And once you get past 100 terabytes of storage, that's when they start recommending 32 gigabytes of RAM or more. The great thing about this is you know 
they have experience with these numbers. They have tested them, and that's why that's why they're a good reference. I, I agree. I also think the other bit that is a little hard for really longtime sysadmins to swallow, but I have seen it myself, is they do not recommend you use a RAID controller with ZFS. It's a point we've touched on a lot in this show. Simply put, ZFS wants to be as connected to the data, as close to the metal as possible, and RAID controllers will complicate disk replacement and ZFS's management of the disk. Yeah, sometimes there's also, you know, extra layers of caching or other complications. If ZFS can talk right to the disk, you're going to have a better time. Also, I noticed that they sort of downplay the use of FreeNAS in a VM. FreeBSD, they say the underlying OS of FreeNAS is not the best virtualization guest. It lacks some VertIO drivers. It lacks some features that make it a better-behaved guest. And most importantly, it lacks full support for some virtualization vendors. In addition, ZFS, again, wants direct access to your hardware, which can be a little complicated in a VM setup. Right. And so if you are if you are not already an expert on a particular virtualization platform, if you don't have an actual need for this... It's a lot more hassle. Now, you can definitely make it work, especially if you can do PCI pass-through, especially if you're using a virtualizer that FreeBSD supports well. But keep in mind that support will be harder to come by. We'll also provide you a link to the Worst Practices Guide by FreeNAS, which is kind of a fun approach. I think you've done all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can get a link to that, which is actually a pretty decent guide on our website. Just go to the show notes, techsnap.systems slash 367. Well, now... Let's chat a bit about the specifics of the JB setup. You probably heard us talk a little bit about it before. There's been a lot of changes. Where are we at now? Yeah, there has been. So let's catch everybody up to date. So to start with, uh, we ordered a uh, previously loved server from Unix Surplus. It's a Supermicro X8 DTN, and it comes with a couple of Intel Xeon L5 640 CPUs running at 2.27 gigahertz, which... In total, after hyperthreading, gives us like 24 cores on this free Ooh, ads. Now, shipped, it had four gigabytes of RAM. But through the generous contributions of a couple of listeners, we now have 64 gigabytes of RAM in this monster. That's awesome. Uh, we have, do you remember, is it 12 hard drives we have in there right now? I believe so. Yeah. Uh, and do you remember what the total storage capacity was at the moment? I, I forgot what it was, but it's quite a bit of storage in this thing. And it still has open drive bays because it's got 24 bays total. <laughs> Our future is bright. Yeah, it's looking really good. And uh, we're loving it. And it's been super fast. It's been really solid since we put in production. It's been running continuously for uh, just over two weeks now. So it's still kind of in that early phase. Not everything is completely set up, but it's been solid. We just did a reboot today before the show just to make sure that everything came back up because it hadn't been rebooted since Alan was here. (laughs) And Alan showed up. He started working on it immediately. I love it. And we talked a little bit about this in the clip we're going to play from Linux Fest. But Alan got here. He's sitting around. And as soon as he honed in on a neglected free NAS, free BSD system, he sprung into action. So Alan's joined us here live at Linux Fest Northwest. And uh, as is tradition now, in the Jupiter Broadcasting Studios, we do a whole bunch of tomfoolery. Of course we do. And it's a great opportunity. What is this? You know, the free NAS server. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I was like, there was no goofing around when I was on the show. What are you talking about? No, no. (laughs) It's a new era. Yes, Tons of fun. Now we have tomfoolery. No, actually, very much... uh, in a way, it sort of worked out perfectly. We got to rebuilding the studio. Alan showed up on Wednesday? Wednesday, yep. Wonderful. And uh, got right to work. Nobody had to ask Alan to get to work. That's the thing you got to love about Alan Jude. Is he There's mistreated up. FreeBSD over here? I will fix that. Yeah, he, he shows up. And he started getting right to work. 
Uh, so, Alan, I, where should we start with uh, the FreeNAS project? So when well, I guess Wes we'll and I left, what you we had. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he had uh, a FreeNAS Mini that was unplugged that had four three terabyte drives in it. And then you had uh, <clears throat> the new machine that you had bought, and you had put four or five terabyte drives in that. And then we found a QNAP under a desk somewhere that had huh. had your best drives in it actually. Yeah. For eight terabyte drives, although one of the ports was dead or something, so On one the of the drives QNAP. was kind of like sticking out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided that the best way to start was I look at the free NAS, uh, sorry, the, the new server, and it has a pool with 500 kilobytes of data on it. Like, you, you had created the pool and I've never put any files on yeah. it. And I was like, all right, this, <laughs> Ready is, to go. this is perfect, exactly what I need. So I pulled the drives out of the FreeNAS Mini and just stick them in the server. And so immediately, the FreeNAS is like, hey, look, a pool I can import. So I import it, and I have this second pool now. Um, but it's 94% full because you'd filled it up as much as you could and then stop. Yeah. Uh, so immediately, as the FreeNAS is like, you know, you need more space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so first thing I did is I, I get Noah watching, and I was like, watch this, uh, ZFS snapshot, uh, I think it was called Buttermere. Yeah. And then I created a snapshot called transfer across all the data sets. And then I did ZFS send that pipe, ZFS receive onto the new uh, pool, which you had called snap spot, which is really hard to spell when you're used to uh, typing snapshot. Sorry about that. <laughs> I, I have no idea how that what came What does that about. name even mean? I, I, don't, I don't know. It does not ring a bell. Okay. Well, that was called snap Apologies. spot. Apologies. Thank you. I'm going to rename you. it Levi, maybe. That, then it'll solve the problem. I love that. Yes. Um, and so we transferred all the data from the four three terabyte drives to the four five terabyte drives. Okay. And once they were the old drives were empty, we deleted them and added them to the pool. So the, uh, the four five terabyte drives were done as two sets of two mirrors. Mm. So we had two drives mirrored and then another two drives yeah. mirrored, and we stripe across that. Right. And then we added the three terabyte drives to that oh. pool, and now we have more space. And so I started transferring the stuff off the QNAP. Of course, I couldn't use ZFS to do it. I had to use rsync, and it was terribly slow, and I had to fight with it. Uh, And then I realized as we were going, we were actually going to run out of space because there was eight terabytes of stuff on the QNAP. So I grabbed the one drive that wasn't in use in the QNAP and stuck it in the FreeNAS server and added it as a Stripe, which is a really bad idea. The one that was offline because the port was bad in the QNAP. Yeah. Uh, So I added that to the pool as a non-redundant Stripe, which is a really bad idea, but we're going to add the other one to bring it back into a mirror as soon as we get back to the studio on Sunday. Uh, And that gives us enough free space to finish transferring all the QNAP stuff over. And then on uh, Sunday when we get back, I'll pull the other three drives out of the QNAP, throw them in the new FreeNAS, and you'll end up with... A, a, a nice amount of extra free space. <laughs> you have about 12 terabytes of free space? Perfect. Wow, that's great. Yeah. So, so the main you... reason we set it up as those uh, sets of mirrors, so yeah. we'll have, what, two, yeah. one, two, three, four, six uh, sets of mirrors, is so that when it's time for you, when you need more space, you can replace uh, the smallest drives, the three terabyte drives, two at a time. So like, if I'll like when Amazon one, has a sale, for example. Yeah, you get two new drives. You replace one, let it resilver. Replace the other, let it resilver, and then you'll have the extra space right away. So functionally, should I just wait about 24 hours, check in on it, see how yeah, it's doing? Yeah, and see how the resilver's doing, and it should be done. Then just yeah. pop in the next one when it's done. Exactly. It's um, like you're taking a sick baby home from the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do I? What do I do? How do I take care of it? <laughs> just watch it closely. Yeah. Um, whereas if we had done four or three sets of RAID Z, one like with four drives, you get a little bit more usable space, but when you wanted to upgrade, you'd have to upgrade four drives at a time. And that's a lot more money to spend at once. Whereas if you do it over time, you get that much more flexibility. And yeah, you, and you might actually do it. Exactly. Yeah, that too. You know, what would really suck is you, if you had the sets of four, then you upgrade two of the drives from the sale at Amazon, 
and you don't get any extra space until you spend the money to get two more drives. So what is the allenge you'd take on the Super Micro Box that we got to be the free NAS server for JB? Well, I, I was the one that recommended it, so <laughs> it's great. But, but hardly, um, hardly unbiased. Um, we, we went to unixsurplus.com and yeah. got an old, like, an, it's an X8. It's not that power efficient, but it's dual socket. You get like 24 cores. It has a bunch of memory included, and then uh, apparently a fan has sent you a, a bundle of extra memory. And somebody yeah. just stopped by the booth and gave me another 16 gigs of RAM. <laughs> That's insane. So, so Isn't yeah, that great? We'll, we'll shut it down if we get the old uh, hard drives in in the mirror yeah. and, and uh, get some extra RAM in there. That's awesome. This is turning into nice. a mean machine. Yeah, it's really, it's really looking good. Well, Alan, thank you so much. Yes. Now, after we were done chatting free NAS, you learned another interesting little tidbit about changes around JB. I've now learned via the grapevine that both Alan and Noah have set themselves up like the perfect environment. So they, they reclaim some hardware since we've done this free NAS migration, and they've set themselves up. Noah has a CentOS environment, and, and Alan has a free, no, a free BSD environment. Kind of. Uh, okay. so, so we set up a, uh, we put, what I wanted was a machine I could SSH into from the internet, yeah. uh, and then bounce into the free NAS so we didn't put the free NAS on the internet. Yeah. Uh, so, Thanks, uh, yep. Noah set up a CentOS machine, and then when we went out to lunch, he was like, I know what we should do. And he copied and pasted some commands from his personal wiki and set up Vert Manager on it and installed FreeBSD because he had never done it. So I actually walked him through. He installed FreeBSD for him to learn, great. and I'll just use That's it great. too. Uh, and then we're going to give Chris access so we can set up some VMs to play with stuff. Yeah, but now Alan Jude has backdoor access to the JV1 studio. Via Noah's FreeBSD VM. <laughs> that, isn't that something? Wow. <laughs> I, would, I didn't think I would ever see the day. How did he do? How, you know, did did what, he come did, to it naturally? Uh, yeah. And, uh, well, the FreeBSD installer oh, yeah, is super enter, easy. enter, host name, enter, enter, mm -hmm. enter, mm -hmm. which drive, enter, enter, done. Add a user. Set your root password, done. And sure enough, since Linux Fest, Alan has remoted in and been organizing some of the back archives. So we now have a complete video archive of the TechSnap program, thanks to Alan, which was uh, missing because of a few uh, failed uploads and downloads over time. And uh, he's organized a few other aspects of it. So every now and then, I'm walking around the studio and I get this spider sense and I know, Alan Jude has SSH'd into the network right now. <laughs> Cheers to Alan. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That's a landing page to go to learn more about IX and grab that handy white paper that'll grease the wheels up the chain in your corporation to switch over to a hardware provider that does it better. They do it right. They do it the way you would want them as if your entire company's infrastructure was in their hands because it is. And that's why your hardware vendor matters. And that's why IX getting these things right, having deep connections in the open source community and long time valuable partnerships with their hardware partners and providers makes all of the difference. IX Systems has been around since before the dot-com boom, and they're experts in storage, backup, big infrastructure, small infrastructure, and, of course, virtualization storage. And if you go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap, you can bounce from there to their blog and read Mr. Dexter's write-up of his trip to Linux Fest Northwest 2018. And speaking of that, Alan Jude, he's up on there as well as others. It's always a great write-up. And Dexter talks about a couple of his talks and is able to link to them this year as well because there's been some videos that the Fest put out, including his switching to BSD from Linux talk, which uh, is always brave when you're at a Linux Fest. Details as well as pictures are up on their site. IX Systems does it right. And it's clear when you visit their website and when you talk to them. Just give it a go and see why it's my favorite hardware provider for years. Since before I was even my own business owner, 
I was switching people to IX Systems. And now they're who I go with. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go there, learn more about the company behind FreeNAS and TrueNAS, as well as many other open source initiatives. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Thanks for going to techsnap.systems slash contact to send in your feedback and thoughts, just like Jason did. He writes, After listening to TechSnap episode 365, I'd like to put in another plug for Zabbix. I work at a rural ISP, and we use it to monitor all of our gear, from servers and routers and bits clocks to carrier-grade voice switches and even environmental alarming. Its low-level discovery feature is awesome. Also, another project your listeners may enjoy is Hubblestack. That's hubblestack.io. Hubble is a modular, open-source, security and compliance auditing framework that can be tightly integrated into SaltStack. The lead developer works for Adobe. He actually built it to help manage security compliance at Adobe for literally tens of thousands of servers. Thankfully, they allow him to open-source the code. Ah, thanks for the you mentioned there, Jason. Yeah, Hubble so, definitely looks neat. I think yeah. I'll give that a try. Hubblestack.io if you would like to check that out yourself. So listener Brian writes in with a war story that goes back from a couple episodes ago when we asked right. people to. This is a good one. He, we, asked to, we asked to get these, and I, I'm so I'm thankful. I'm so glad. Because it's just fun to live vicariously through some of these. He writes in, I nuked an email server once from a misplaced period. You see, we had an SGI box running IRIX and some old Netscape email server. That thing would fill up with all this cache crap from time to time. And you had to just go log in and rm-rf the top cache folder. You know, take care of it. Of course. Fiddly, but it got the job done. I was relatively new to the whole Unix world, and obviously there were better ways to skin this cat, but at the time, that's just how we did it. Well, you can imagine what happens when you forget that simple little dot in your syntax. I ran the command, and I noticed it was taking up a lot longer to clean up than it did usually. I looked at the screen, and I just froze. I noticed everything scrolling by being deleted from slash forward. Ooh, I'm sure the many root. people can sympathize with that. <laughs> he got the root. And of course, this is back in the day and on IRIX. There's no like, there's no like uh, flags you had to spell. It's just, if you do a dash uh. RF, it goes. <laughs> he says, I confess my sins pretty quickly to my boss. And as luck would have it, I was just about done setting up a new Linux-based email server to replace that old Netscape stuff. Wow. The new server got put into production much quicker than planned, obviously, and without any proper testing. But thankfully, it worked fine, and I never made a mistake like that again. I didn't really get in trouble with it, but I was actually praised by the company for the implementation of the new email server, and I don't think my boss ever told anyone what really happened. Yeah, that's just a surprise decommissioning right there. It, it happens, and you already had the replacement. That's perfect. That's pretty great, and I really appreciate uh, you sharing that with us, Brian. If you'd like to share us your war story, please do, techsnap.systems slash contact. Before we get out of the feedback segment, though, uh, just on continuing education and employment, I wanted to point everyone to the DevOps bundle that's going on by the Humble Bundle folks right now. 
And it's actually some legitimate books, a whole different range from automation to deployment with Docker and Kubernetes, like Linux shell scripting, uh, lots of different stuff. And then it's the same kind of thing with Humble Bundle. As you pay more, you also unlock other stuff like books on Ansible. And then you pay even more and you unlock another range of books, like a whole bunch of Kubernetes stuff, uh, Puppet 5. It looks like a great deal. And of course, it's always kicking back a little bit to charity. So I wanted to give you guys a heads up about that. It's obviously at HumbleBundle.com, or link is in the show notes. And uh, go read up. Bunch of smart bastards out there. Sure are. That brings us to the end of today's episode. But before we go, we have a few final thoughts. I want to share with you that I'll be at Texas Linux Fest June 8th through the 9th. So if you are in the Austin area and want to come say hi, I would love to shake your hand. That also means there's going to be travel as I get down to Texas and get back. So as always, the show could have some flux in its release windows and whatnot. So the best solution is just go to techsnap.systems slash subscribe or just plug our feed in directly techsnap.systems slash RSS into your favorite catcher. Boom. Easy peasy. And of course, if you want to write in and tell us just what you think about that or anything else, techsnap.systems slash contact. We would yeah. love to have more war stories, more yeah. monitoring tips, or FreeNAS best practices. Yeah, your tips and tricks for your FreeNAS rig would also be appreciated. Best practices, tips and tricks, uh, those kinds of things, plugins you're using on it. Let us know. We're, the, the possibilities are endless with 24 cores and nearly... 60 gigs of RAM. I think I think we could figure out a few things to do with it. So let us know your thoughts on that. Go get more Wes Payne on the internet too. He's at Wes Payne on the Twitter. I'm at Chris LAS. The network is at Jupiter Signal. Right there. That's everything. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of TechSnap. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>